Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Markets are full of numbers, big ones, small ones, nonsensical ones. But what is the most influential number in investing? Is it the oil price or the interest rate set by the Fed? Today, I force Roman to choose between seven different rates and prices to crown the world's most important number. And in our dumb question of the week, why does the Fed set its policy rate as a range rather than a single number? Okay, let's get into it. So Roman, I quite like this topic because it reminds me a bit of being back in primary school. What's your favourite number? Number seven? Yeah, seven is a good number. (laughs) There is no right answer, that's why. So what do you want to start with? Well, let's start with oil because it's something which is in people's minds right now. I think historically it's probably been seen as one of the most important numbers by a wide range of economists, but also people who work in markets. Whenever you go on a finance website, it's always in the ticker at the top, the price of oil. Yeah, if you look in the list of numbers that you see in the FT, and when we were on the trading floor, we also had these kind of lists of numbers that went past. Oil was one of them. So why is it so important? It might seem like an obvious question. Well, any kind of economic activity requires energy. And how do we measure the cost of energy? Where does it come from? Well, at the moment, it's still the case that we depend heavily on oil for almost anything that we do. So let's say you eat a banana for breakfast in the morning. How does energy factor into the price of the banana? Well, it had to be shipped from across the world. If it was grown in Europe, then it probably required on some kind of heating, which again would depend probably on fossil fuels at some point. It's weird, isn't it, how the whole of our global economy runs on squashed sea creatures? (laughs) Isn't that what oil is, basically? Yeah, I was always amazed by this, the transformational process by which you can take one of these beautiful ancient forests where all the plants are now extinct and then turn it into fuel nowadays. And the rate at which we're using up that old sunlight is just incredible. And it does have a real impact, doesn't it, on the global economy, as we all know. As the price of oil goes higher, that tends to really weigh on economic activity. And I read in the Financial Times that the International Energy Agency's rule of thumb is that a $10 increase in the price of a barrel of oil roughly means 0.5% lower GDP the next year. Yeah, the economists we used to work with said about 0.3%. But, uh, you know, that's in the ballpark. So this is for the US, of course. If you're in Saudi Arabia, very different story, because if the price of oil goes up for them, it's very good. And this might sound like a slightly silly question, but what do we actually mean by the oil price? Is there even one oil price? Because you see different things quoted. Yeah, oil's kind of interesting, or any commodity price for that matter. How do you define a price? And in this case, it's defined by the futures market usually. What that means is that it's an agreement to buy a certain quality of oil at a certain place, because you have to specify where it'll be delivered, at a certain time. Interesting, because the two benchmarks I hear a lot about are Brent crude and West Texas Intermediate, WTI. So there are lots of different prices depending on which market you're looking at. The one which is used in the US often is WTI, which is West Texas Intermediate, and the one which is used in the UK, but also for international markets, is Brent. So the problem is that you have to specify exactly what you mean, which kind of oil you're buying, because there are lots of different types. And as I understand it, Brent crude makes up roughly two thirds of all the oil contracts around the world. So it is the most popular benchmark globally. Despite the fact that North Sea oil is kind of fizzling out a little bit now. 
So what's the advantage of futures contracts then? Is it that it makes it all tradable and we can sort of get the market to set a price and pretend that that's the actual price of oil? Well, by standardising the contracts, they become more liquid. You can have two things which are essentially the same and that way you can trade them much more easily and cheaply. Also, if you're a producer, you can lock in a price for a certain point in time so they can kind of hedge their uncertainty away. And if you're an oil buyer, so let's say you're an airline, then you can effectively hedge your exposure. Could work either way. You could lock in a high price, unfortunately, but hopefully you've locked in a low price. I saw that the Bank of England was saying that one reason why energy costs have taken a while to come down in the UK for consumers after the peak was that a lot of utilities companies had locked in the high prices using futures contracts. Yeah, it can go badly wrong. And if you're the treasurer of one of these companies, I think it would be a very scary job. If you get it wrong, then everyone hates you. And if you get it right, people just assume that you managed it okay. If you get it right, no one's ever heard of you, I think, as a treasurer of one of these companies. (laughs) But what drives the oil price? Is there any way to predict it, or is it just in the lap of the gods? Well, economists always try. They don't get it very accurately forecast on the whole, which isn't unusual for economists. But I think it's a very difficult thing to forecast because it depends on so many things. But to first order, it's driven by economic activity. As we said at the beginning, if you do anything, it requires oil. So the more economic activity there is, the greater the price of oil. So when the economy was effectively switched off in 2020, you can see why the futures price went negative briefly. That was more to do with storage. Because there was all this oil, right, floating on the sea. No one needed oil. And it's like, yeah, you've got to take delivery, right, on this futures contract. Where are you going to put your oil? So no one wanted it. You had to pay someone to take this oil off your hands. Because you couldn't store it. For example, at Cushing, I think the storage was effectively used up. So if you'd have taken delivery, you'd be (laughs) a bit stuffed. But I think that's just a weird example. But the thing to understand is that it's driven by economic activity. And when that increases, then there's a bigger demand for oil and it pushes up the price. So that will give you your crude understanding of oil. (laughs) At least on the demand side. But the supply side presumably matters as well. And that is extremely complicated subject to the OPEC cartel in the Middle East, and also just geopolitics, right? Yeah, so we have these large groups of countries, such as OPEC and now OPEC+. Plus. OPEC's dominated by Saudi Arabia. They make about 10 million barrels a day of 100 million barrels a day, which are used globally. Russia's the largest member of OPEC+, Plus, and that produces also about 10 million barrels a day. But those two countries, Saudi and Russia, and to a lesser extent, Iraq, United Arab Emirates and Kuwait make up the biggest producers. These are not stable countries. These are countries which probably would use their clout in order to manipulate prices because they work in a market which is effectively doomed. It's going to run out. So they have to eke out the maximum profit they can from the dwindling reserves which they've got. Because after that, they've shot their bolt. You know, what are they going to have after that? Football clubs, (laughs) I think. (laughs) But you can see that they are trying to diversify away from fossil fuels, and understandably. So is the oil price getting more or less important over time? Well, temporarily, I think it's getting more important because we've got this transition period when we're moving away from fossil fuels towards renewables. And during that period, we'll still depend on oil. 
but investment in the infrastructure has dwindled. And so there'll be a restriction in the supply while demand is still okay. So I think that's the kind of shaky period when we're going to get very volatile oil prices, which makes it more economically important temporarily. But by the time you know our kids grow up, then I think oil will be much, much less important. And I know that oil and I think all commodities are priced in US dollars. So another number in the global economy that people say is super important and definitely a candidate for the most important number is the strength of the dollar. Yeah, that's right. It's measured relative to the dollar. So you could say that commodity prices being high is just uh, another way of saying the dollar is weak relative to that commodity. But it's not just commodities that the dollar affects, is it? It's effectively all trade because a lot of trade is done in dollars, but it doesn't involve the US. It's not a bilateral trade between someone and the US. It could be between anyone, any two countries, regardless of their currencies. So it affects all of that trade as well. And it affects things like debt, which is denominated in dollars, often by other countries. Is it too simplistic to say that everyone around the world effectively needs dollars? So if the dollar is getting stronger and more expensive, it's kind of tightening global financial conditions. That's true, I think. And there have been periods during the global financial crisis, for example, when dollars were scarce and it was difficult to get your hands on them. The dollar strengthens when people are scared because it's seen as a safe haven currency. So if you were a bank and had to deliver payments in dollars, then there would have been a scrabble to get those dollars. And how would we measure the strength of the dollar? I know if you just wanted to look at the dollar versus the pound, you can look at the exchange rate. Cable, they call it, don't they? They do. But is there one number we can just use to see dollar strength more generally? So if you think about why the dollar is important, it's mostly to do with trade. And so what you can do is create a trade-weighted average strength of the dollar. So you'd weight countries with which the US trades more, more heavily. For example, there's a broad currency index which includes the euro area, Canada, Japan, Mexico, China, the UK, and so on. And each of those will have a weighting, which is driven by the volume of trade that they do with the US. And a popular one, a popular trade-weighted index, is called Dixie, D-X-Y. And what about the effect in the US? Because if the dollar is getting more expensive, then presumably that's really bad for US companies that do a lot of business overseas and export. So if you think about the most important US companies right now, they're these mega cap tech companies. Often they have global sales, think about Apple, but they report in dollars, which means that if you convert it back into dollars and the dollars strengthened, then that reduces your profits. So dollar strength for those companies, which dominate the S&P, for example, is a real problem. And is this something that the big companies try to hedge out this risk? Or is that just very difficult to do? They try, you know, <laughs> but it's not easy to do. And I think the other thing that people often misunderstand is how important companies are to currency transactions. They generate most of the flow. So hedging, but also just converting money is mostly done by corporates. But overall, we've seen a pretty strong rally in the dollar against all of those currencies in its trade basket. And we've said that that's generally bad news for US exporters, but it's also bad news, isn't it, as you hinted at, for some countries around the world who've done sovereign borrowing in US dollars. These are hard currency bonds because it makes it more expensive to pay back that debt. 
So hard currency debt, like you say, that's going to be more costly now to service. Often what happens is if you have a period of very strong dollar strengthening, then it triggers some kind of crisis, a debt crisis in emerging markets. I think that emerging markets are now more cautious about that kind of problem. And maybe they've taken less risk, but I'd never say never. I think this could be a problem in future. So I think the dollar has a large capacity to destabilize markets. If it strengthens too much, if it weakens too much, then that can be a problem for everyone. And you mentioned that perhaps the main thing that drives the strength of the dollar is interest rates and the interest rate differential between the US and other countries. So that takes us on to the Fed funds rate, which is our third candidate for the most important number in investing. Now, this is the policy rate from the Fed, the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank, and it's probably the most important one globally. It's still the case, I think, that everybody pays attention to the Fed. But really, this is the primary monetary policy tool for the most important economy in the world. So everyone pays attention to that number. What is the Fed funds rate? And recently, it's been surging over the last 18 months or so by about five and a quarter percentage points. So in that kind of situation where it's getting more restrictive, that slows down economic activity. The idea is that it's going to slow down inflation. That hasn't been as quick as the Fed has hoped, although it does seem to be working now. And how is this number set? Is it just a load of people in the room deciding what it should be every few months? Yes, it is. <laughs> They're very important people. I mean, the Federal Reserve has its own version of what in the UK we'd call the Monetary Policy Committee. Theirs is called the FOMC, the Federal Open Markets Committee. And they have Fed presidents from the Fed banks who have a cycle of becoming voting members and then not being voting members. And people spend ages looking at the individual votes of the individual members of the committee to see who are the hawks, who are the doves who wants to hike, who wants to keep rates low. So it's endlessly analysed by analysts and poured over by investors. Because remember that everyone says don't fight the Fed. When the Fed cuts rates, usually you get a surge in stock markets. Just look at 2020. Look at the turnaround point as the markets were in free fall. The day that the Fed stepped in is the day that markets turned around and we got probably one of the greatest rallies of our lifetimes. So don't fight the Fed is probably a good thing to listen to. It's interesting you mention that because the way they stepped in was they bought loads of debt, right? And loads of bonds and they blew up the size of their balance sheet. So maybe some people are saying that what's more important than the Fed funds rate is actually the size of the Fed's balance sheet in terms of driving markets, at least. What do you think about that as an argument? I think it's possibly important, but people usually have these graphs showing the size of the Fed's balance sheet, the performance of the S&P, and yes, it looks quite convincing if you use the right time period. But of course, the Fed has only been expanding its balance sheet massively since 2008, 2009. But at the moment, we're seeing quantitative tightening as the size of the Fed's balance sheet is shrinking at about a trillion dollars a year. It started off at 9 trillion, currently it's at about 8, and it's shrinking rapidly. And everyone's saying, oh, this is terrible for stock markets. But remember that for 100 years, the S&P has been growing at about 9% per year. And that wasn't because the Fed balance sheet was expanding. It was because corporate earnings were increasing. 
So sure, you can kind of zoom in on this period. And yes, the size of the balance sheet is important, but I don't think it's as important as people think. Yeah, I never really put much stock in those graphs. Any graph which has a double y-axis, yeah. I immediately throw in the bin <laughs> because you can make them look right, just squishing one axis or the other. I did work with an economist and he did love those graphs, but it always made me think, hmm, I'm not completely convinced here. It's a chart crime in my yeah. book. <laughs> so the Fed funds rate is kind of the central bank in America setting what it believes is the right interest rate for the short term for super safe borrowing. But then what a lot of people look at is not that short term rate. It's the 10 year treasury yield you often see quoted as the most important number in the world. Now, this is slightly different because this isn't driven by central bank policy. It's not a committee that sets it, whereas short-term interest rates are dominated by that Fed funds rate. So this factors in more expectations about what's going to happen to the US economy, but also inflation in the US. If you plot the nominal GDP rate versus the 10-year yield or the 20-year yield, there's a pretty good relationship, not not one-to-one, certainly. So if you had one of these slowly varying double axis charts for that, Michael, you'd see that the relationship is not hugely different. So there are a number of reasons why those two are related. The way to think of it, I think, is what's a sustainable rate at which the US can borrow? Well, that depends on its economic growth. So that is what I think links the two. And why is this treasury yield so important in markets? Is it partly to do with just how big it is as a market. There are a lot of treasuries in the world. Well, treasuries are used as collateral all across the world because they're super safe. You don't expect the US to default. If you had to put your money on any country not defaulting, I'd say it would be the US. That's probably the safest economy globally. So they act as collateral. They are the risk-free asset. They're very, very, very liquid. People say, oh, it's become illiquid now, but you compare that with any other market and it trades half a trillion a day and the trading costs are very low. So, you know, very liquid, very deep market, very low risk, I'd say. And I think there's more than $25 trillion of outstanding treasuries. So it's just enormous. So it's going to be important just for that reason, right? There's a lot of money in treasuries. You may as well like them because there's lots of them. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's a great market for defining risk-freeness. And that's how it's seen. It's seen as the bedrock of the financial system. Plus a lot of the financial system depends on it to grease the wheels, to act as collateral in order to make transactions safer. So what does that actually look like then when you say users collateral? Is that if I want to borrow money from you, I'm going to lend you one of my treasuries, which if I get into trouble, you can just sell the treasury and be fine. Exactly. And you don't want something which is not safe to be the collateral. Yeah. And you don't want kind of wrong way risk. I don't want one of your corporate bonds to collateralize the transaction. (laughs) I'm going to try and give it to you, but you're not going to take it. (laughs) Or Ethereum, perhaps, or some cryptocurrency. No, I don't want that. I want something safe. And so for that purpose, it acts as the plumbing, the kind of lubricant for a lot of transactions where it requires collateral. So a lot of borrowing depends on treasuries as well. And why is it usually the 10-year treasury yield we see quoted? Why not the three-year or the 30-year? Well, to some extent, it is a a kind of round number. We've got 10 fingers and toes. (laughs) (laughs) 
But also, I think uh, there's a futures contract. There's a 10-year futures contract, which is very liquid. A lot of companies trade that futures contract. I once asked an economist this at the pub, and he sort of shrugged and said, maybe it's because it's the business cycle. Yeah, I mean, a round number, 10-year business cycle might be it. But also, it's the belly of the curve. It's right in the middle. It's not short term, which would be one to three years. It's not ultra long term, which would be 20 to 30 years. It's the belly. And it's the belly, which is interesting. Yeah, I think you care about what's going to happen in the next 10 years. In 30 years, who knows, maybe I'll be dead. In two years, well, that's not enough time. I'm still going to be pretty much doing what I'm doing now. But 10 (laughs) years is that nice point where there's enough uncertainty that the market is guessing a little bit, but not too much. Yeah, so not too much duration, not too much volatility and... A kind of interesting point, a period of time, I'd say. I mean, it's interesting how important the bond market is, particularly the treasury market, because I think as investors, we usually look at stocks, don't we? And maybe particularly the S&P 500 is kind of seen as the benchmark, isn't it? So some people would say the most important number in the world might be the S&P 500 or some measure of it. And as an equity investor or a global investor, that's probably true. Because you can't ignore the US, you can't trade away from it very easily. If you've got a global index, well, it'll be 60% US, and that's pretty chunky. And if something bad happens to the US market, it's going to drag everybody down. People talk about tilting away from the US because it's overvalued, but I'm not sure what the value of that would be, because if it does fall, then there's not going to be anywhere to hide from that fall in US markets. A sudden fall, yeah, but I guess what most people are expecting by tilting away from the US is that over the next 10, 20 years, it will just perform slightly below the rest of the world and therefore come back into line with valuations. Yeah, that's the thinking. And I think people have been saying that for some time. I kind of gave up on that. So that probably means it's going to happen. (laughs) Right, good to know. But if we were trying to pick one number as a candidate for the most important number in the world as it relates to stocks, what would it be? Would it be the S&P 500 level or its valuation? What are you going to pick? Well, certainly not the level because that's always increasing and it's not anchored to anything and it can carry on increasing forever. And it's often pushing new highs. So I'd look at the valuation. I'd look at the S&P relative to the next 12 months projected profit because that's mean reverting. Do you always want your most important number to be mean reverting? Just so you have some sort of anchor in your mind? Yeah, because otherwise you've just got no idea where you stand. I mean, if you say that the S&P is at 5,000, what does that mean? It's just a number. But if you say it's 5,000 and that's 20 times the forward earnings, well, that sounds quite expensive. If it's five times forward earnings, that's a screaming buy. So, you know, I think the mean reversion is an incredibly useful tool as an investor to know which way markets are likely to head over the long term. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of different things. So I said we were going to cover seven different candidate numbers. And we've talked about five, which were the ones I put forward to you, which is the oil price, strength of the dollar, the Fed funds rate, the 10-year treasury yield, and the S&P 500 valuation. But you've got two more candidates you want to add for us to consider as the most important number in investing. Yeah, now I know you hate both of these, Michael. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, well, I'll let you talk about them. What's the first one? The first one's on farm payrolls because 
This is the one that really discriminates between people who are professional investors and who are not. Non-farm payrolls, it sounds so weird and technical, and yet it's incredibly important because this is to do with the most important jobs market in the US, and it drives monetary policy in the United States. So what is it, first of all, and how is it quoted? It's the number of jobs which the US economy has added over the last month. If it's above 100,000, then that would probably push employment higher in the US. If it's below 100,000, then probably unemployment is going to be rising. So what you're telling me is that the US has to create 100,000 jobs every month just to stay in neutral. Yeah, to absorb the new entrance to the job market as they graduate school or emigrate to the United States. And this is the number that's been kind of worrying the Fed, isn't it, over the last year or two, is that non-farm payrolls, employment in the US, has been really strong. We've seen numbers like 500,000, 300,000, well above 100,000. Yeah, think of them as trying to douse a fire. They're trying to stop the fire roaring in the grate and setting the chimney on fire with inflation. But what's actually happening is, you know, they're pouring water on the fire, but it just carries on burning. So from their point of view, they see that as inflationary. And that's pretty worrying for them because they're being very restrictive in their monetary policy. And yet the reaction of wage growth, which is the key variable, has not been very rapid. It continues to be high and inconsistent with inflation at 2%. So this is why non-farm payrolls is important because that drives monetary policy. That drives the most important risk-free rate in the world, which is the Fed funds rate. That, to some extent, controls the whole yield curve in the US and the yield curves across the world, I'd say. And arguably influences the strength of the dollar, which then influences the oil price. And we've tied everything we've talked about together. This is professional podcasting, Romin. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's just round this out with our last candidate for the world's most important number. What have you got? So this is defined in the notes as Romin's sci-fi shit. So let me just... (laughs) (laughs) You're literally just reading out my notes. Yeah, okay. What is your sci-fi stuff then for today? Well, this is to do with the strength of rope. Now, this sounds odd, but I think it's probably the most important number technologically, not just for investors. The reason why I think this matters is because if you look at constraints on human activity, it's effectively the planet that we occupy. So if we're bound to one planet, that caps GDP, it caps earnings growth. As the size of the human population starts to stabilise, we'll see GDP start to flatline, probably, unless we can make people more productive. And we really haven't found technologies to do that on a consistent basis. People say AI will or nanotechnology will, but we still haven't seen that. So to increase GDP, and kind of pull the cork out of the bottle, limiting human growth, we've got to get off planet. The only way to do that is to get into space cheaply and safely. All right, but what has this got to do with rope and the strength of rope, whatever you said? Well, as a kid, I read this book by Arthur C. Clarke called Fountains of Paradise, and he describes this thing called a space elevator. And the idea seems really stupid and simple, but... The idea is that you build a rope which essentially you can climb up into space. Jack and the Beanstalk. Jack (laughs) and the Beanstalk, yeah. I mean, this is Jack and the Beanstalk. You are trying to sell us magic beans here. 
What's the problem though? I mean, it is possible to do this. You kind of lower a rope from space and as you grow the rope, you kind of extend it upwards into space as you grow it downwards and they kind of counterbalance. So this thing would be an orbit of about 36,000 kilometres or about 22,000 miles off the surface of the Earth. And then what we do, we're climbing up the rope and we can get into space without the need for big rockets. Yeah, and that means that you can get into space really cheaply. So instead of having to pay thousands of dollars for every kilogram you lift into space, we're just talking about a couple of dollars. So talk about the strength of rope then. Is that what's holding this back? We just haven't got strong enough ropes. Yeah, because the weight of the rope itself is going to break the rope. And there's no material on Earth which is strong enough to suspend its own weight beyond a height of about a couple of kilometres or about 10 kilometres. So if you do it with titanium, it just will snap. It's not going to be strong enough. The only thing which could do it would be something like a nanotube. And we don't have the ability to grow long enough nanotube ropes at the moment. So if we ever do achieve this kind of technological leap, then we'll become a multi-planetary species. GDP won't be capped. And I think that would create a kind of renaissance for humanity. Okay, I was dismissive, but that is kind of fascinating. But I haven't heard a number. What's the number you're proposing for our consideration? Well, there are various technical definitions, but really it's something called the breaking length in kilometres of any material. So let's say you make a rope out of Kevlar, which is one of the strongest but lightest things that we can construct right now. The length of that rope would be 256 kilometres. Any longer than that, and it'll snap under its own weight. And we need to go up to 36,000 kilometres. Exactly. So we're still a long way off that. Graphene has a breaking length of about 6,400 kilometres. So that's a new material which has been discovered recently, which is literally just a one atom thick layer of carbon. Can't we just do this from the top of Everest? <laughs> no. Is that not Everest doesn't very far, no. <laughs> All right, you've made a good case for it, but I don't think you should be allowed to choose the breaking length as the most important number in the world. So what are you going to pick of those different things we talked about? Is it the oil price? We know how important that is. Strength of the dollar. The Fed funds rate or the treasury yield or the S&P 500 valuation. Please don't let it be non-farm payrolls. Yeah, I'm afraid it's non-farm payrolls. But that's the most important number in investing. The thing is, you have to remember the arrow of causality here. I think non-farm payrolls drives so many other things that I'd say underlies a lot of these different variables. Plus, it's really easy to monitor. It's published every month and it's very important. So I think certainly one of the most important, but none of them are important of themselves. You have to monitor all of them, I think. Now, reading these variables and monitoring them and understanding what it means for markets are two separate things. And as part of our community, you can discuss that with others and dig deeper into how they affect markets. To find out more about joining our community, just go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is kind of a technical one, but something I've always wondered about. Why does the Federal Reserve in America set its policy interest rate as a target range rather than, you know, a single number, like we see quoted from the Bank of England or other central banks around the world. The Fed's always like, our interest rate is 
5% to 5.25% or whatever it might be. Just pick a number. <laughs> it is confusing and it's annoying as well because you just want to quote a single number. Yeah. So before we go on, let's just talk about what the Fed funds rate is. So this is the rate at which depository institutions, these are financial companies that can take deposits. These are the rates they charge each other when they lend to one another overnight. And it's collateralized lending. So if I'm a bank and you're a bank, it's how much interest you're going to charge me to borrow some money. Overnight and collateralized. So it's super safe, but not completely safe. And do we just decide that ourselves? Because like, what's the Fed doing then if we're just agreeing a rate? Well, what the Fed does is it provides risk-free rates, which set a lower limit for the rate at which we'll lend to one another. So if we can lend our money to the Fed, deposit our money at the Fed at a certain rate, let's call it 5%, then I wouldn't be willing to lend to you at less than 5% because you're more credit risky than the Fed. Okay, I get it. So banks are going to be charging a little bit more than whatever the floor is that's set by the Fed. But that still doesn't answer the question of what is the Fed funds rate then? If all these banks are presumably charging slightly different rates to each other to borrow and lend overnight. So what you can do is take an average and that's what the effective Fed funds rate is. So it is an average, but it has to be weighted because if two banks are lending, I don't know, a huge amount of money to one another, that transaction should be more important than one where they're just lending a few million dollars to each other. So it's volume weighted, which makes sense. And it's a median, so it kind of ignores the outliers and it smooths the numbers nicely. And I know that the New York Fed publishes that effective Fed funds rate for the prior day on their website at 9 a.m. So you can monitor it and see how well they're keeping the Fed funds rate in their range. And it's very unusual for it to deviate much outside it. So you talked about the kind of lower bound is being set by the Fed. And I think that's primarily through their interest on reserve balances, as they call it, which is what they're going to pay a bank for storing its money directly at one of the Federal Reserve Banks. And it's interesting, this has got two acronyms. It's IOR, which is Interest on Reserves. Sometimes it's called Interest on Excess Reserves, I-O-E-R. But I think they're the same rate. And there's also another one called the Overnight Reverse Repurchase Agreement Facility. And that's there, as I understand it, because not all financial institutions can actually deposit their money at a Federal Reserve Bank. And this is there where the Fed can take collateral and give dollars in return. And again, set a floor for those non-bank financial institutions. Yeah, because a lot of institutions do reverse repo with the Fed, but not all of them can park money with the Fed and earn the IOR rate. So this is just a way of broadening the applicability of their lower floor for the Fed funds to make monetary policy more effective. And underpinning all of this is that banks and other financial institutions are required by law to keep a certain amount of funds at the Fed, aren't they? They have reserve requirements. Yes, because after the financial crisis, we discovered that perhaps that's a good idea. Because you might be thinking, well, why are banks lending to each other overnight? What's the point of that? Well, I think it's because 
some banks might be a little bit short on their reserve requirements and need to get some dollars in the door. And so you go to another bank who's got excess reserves and say, hey, give me a little bit of that. And then the bank says, yeah, but it's going to cost you a little bit more than the IOR rate that the Fed's got. And if you look at the day-to-day activities of the Treasury Department of individual banks, this is a lot of what they do. You know, this can earn them a little bit of extra income, but if they get it wrong, they'll get a regulatory slap on the wrist. So we've talked about how the Fed kind of sets a floor then. But this range is not just a floor, is it? There's kind of a ceiling. It's 5.25 to 5.5. Where's that upper limit coming from? Well, that's not as clear. There is something called the discount window. And you might think that sounds a bit weird. But in olden times, there was actually a discount window at the Fed. And if the bank was desperate for funds, it could go and borrow them at this discount window. And there's still a stigma attached to it. So if you have to borrow at the discount rate, it looks not particularly good for a bank. Yeah. So I guess if I'm a bank and it's the end of the day and I desperately need some dollars in the door to meet my reserve requirements, and every other bank is quoting me some crazily high figure for whatever reason, maybe they think I'm a little bit dodgy, I go to the Fed in its discount window and they'll charge me the discount rate. So I would never really accept any rate from another bank above the discount rate. So that kind of sets a ceiling in that way. Exactly. So that's probably the the ceiling. But I doubt many banks ever actually do that. Not many banks. And if they did, it would be frowned upon. You did see it in the March banking crisis. Yeah. The discount window was being used more than it has in, I think, over a decade. In extremis, you will see it. That's why it's there, isn't it? And also, it'll be a signal to the Fed that banks are in trouble. So probably at that point, it's going to be pulling its special monetary policy tools out of its toolbox. Because by use of the discount window, you're effectively saying no one else will lend to me a reasonable rate. Help! (laughs) Yeah. But it's interesting that when I looked into this, the way the Fed keeps the effective federal funds rate within its target range kind of changed completely after the financial crisis to this world we've just talked about of administered rates, as they call it. Before that, it was done in a completely different way. So the new regime is called the Ample Reserves Framework. And previously, it wasn't called anything because that's just the way it was. But there were just less reserves at banks. And so the Fed could effectively increase those reserves by buying securities from banks, injecting money into those banks effectively, And by selling those securities to the banks, it could reduce that cash. So it could control the amount of money which they'd have in their reserves as a result of that buying and selling activity. Yeah, it's interesting. They manage the interest rate by controlling the money supply effectively, whereas now they're using these administered rates, which seems more straightforward. They're setting floors and caps, basically. But the thing with interest rates is the central bank is not all powerful, is it? It can set these rates that effectively influence what banks are charging each other. And that can then cascade through the economy as banks charge businesses and consumers a spread versus their borrowing rate. But they don't control every interest rate in the economy. Now, all they can do is set the risk-free rate, and then all of the risks are laid on top of that and should hopefully pay some kind of spread, depending on the risk. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production. 
co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.